Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hello everyone, Dr. Hondorp here, and we're back with another episode of the Motivation Made Easy podcast. This time, I was able to talk with Julie Satterfield. She is has her own podcast called Shame Free Eating. So we, I had the opportunity to talk to her, and we really had a great conversation about common questions I get about how to incorporate nutritious eating within a non-diet framework or a non-weight-focused framework. And we cover a lot of different topics. So one of the things that I appreciate the most about Julie is just her, the fact that she's been in this field and doing this work really from like the beginning of when intuitive eating came out. So that was when she, um, I believe we talked about it in the interview, but I believe it was when she graduated high school and really, um, she was like on board with this from day one, which is pretty rare that I, um, often find people who've like myself learn about this approach more recently in their or like later in their career and she really graduated and entered the field as a dietitian doing this non-diet work for many many years now so she has just a wealth of knowledge um, and it was really fun to just be able to ask her a bunch of questions that I often get about nutrition within this non-diet framework so we cover the following topics. We talk about how Julie's noticing of her own thin privilege impacted the messages that she got about food growing up and then therefore influenced her desire to go into this career path. Um, again, we talk about the fact that she graduated or she graduated college. I'm sorry, I think I said high school, the year that intuitive eating was first published. So right as she was entering the field as a dietitian after college and how this impacted things for her. We talk about where she's seen the field change and where she hasn't. And we talk about the why, you know, the focus or focusing on health promoting behaviors may be simpler than you think and where she often directs her clients or what she often works with her clients on the most. And we also answer some common questions that we got from our community, but also that we get that I get often from people, which Basically, we answer the following questions. So we answer the question, 
okay, I'm working on my relationship with food. I feel really good about my progress, but I just saw my doctor yesterday. We talked about heart disease risk and I truly want to lose weight still. I think it's the best way to focus on improving my health. So how can I focus on improving my habits and weight loss without messing up the work I've done on my relationship with food? So we talk about that question a lot. And we also answer the question, why is overfocus on calories so unhelpful? And the question, if I don't focus on calories or weight, what the heck should I focus on? So there's so much good in this episode and I can't wait for you to listen in. Have you ever thought, I just need more willpower, or if I only had more self-control? The reality is, this is rarely the problem, and one of the first and most helpful steps to develop sustainable, healthy habits is to learn to make healthy living easier so we can use and rely less on willpower. Sound good? If you're wanting to learn some simple science-backed strategies to use less willpower today and start setting yourself up for success and regaining confidence, grab the free guide at drhondorp.com forward slash five tips. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P dot com forward slash the number five tips to start setting yourself up for success and regaining confidence in yourself today. And before we dive into today's episode, just a reminder that this podcast and corresponding blog is for educational and informational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for any form of professional advice. All right, everyone, let's dive in. All right, so welcome back to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. I am really, really looking forward to my conversation today with Julie Satterfield. Julie, welcome to the podcast. So excited to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, same. You and I have had some fun conversations already offline on your podcast. So we're just going to dive into some really great topics today. So I'd love to have you start with sharing some of your story and how you came to doing this work. Okay. So I was thinking about that and it's, um, It's interesting, really. I think it really goes back to just the fact that I was a picky eater growing up. My mom says that I ate SpaghettiOs only for the first few years of my life. (laughs) And so I think that's pretty funny and pretty telling. (laughs) Um, But I also have thin privilege. And so picky eating was definitely construed in a different way for me than it may have been for a child that was in a larger body. And the it's, it's interesting. So I've thought about this a lot. And then when I got to college, I was still a picky eater and I'm studying dietetics and I'm learning all these things about how to counsel people on how to work with a diabetic diet and with cardiovascular disease and with all these different things. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, Oh my God, that seems terrible. I could never do that. Like, what about all these other people that are maybe picky eaters and they've been given this diagnosis and how are they supposed to do this? And so there's that component that, that struck me. And then people would say stuff to me like, Oh, well, look at you. You're so thin. You must be so healthy and you're a dietitian. So, you know, all this. And I would always say, well, no, I'm just genetically. And I don't eat. I mean, I know what the field says is nutritious. And 
I know that I don't eat that way all the time. I am not a perfect eater. In fact, in college, I lived on bread and cheese. Like I had a bagel with cream cheese for breakfast and I had a grilled cheese sandwich for lunch and I'd have a quesadilla for dinner. I mean, there you go. It's like the two food groups. Like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bread and cheese. Yeah. And so right. it really, I was always just thinking, thinking, thinking. And I thought this does not really make sense. Like people's, um, the more, and I would, I guess as a dietetic student, I would learn stuff and I would go, okay, well, I'm going to try that. Like, I'm going to try to do this and no way. The second you restrict food, I would be ravenous and I would want exactly what I said I wasn't allowed to have. And so all my little experiments, I was like a grand fail at everything restrictive. And so it just made sense to me. And I had a pretty strong background in psychology as well. And so kind of combining the both, I thought, I don't know. (laughs) So that's kind of where it started. And the book intuitive eating actually came out in 1995, which is the year I graduated from college. And I have like, I got that book hot off the presses and it made sense to me immediately. I was like, this is what I'm saying. Okay. (laughs) That's pretty incredible that. And I know we talked a little bit about that aspect of your story. And that struck me of how really rare that is. I don't know. So in the dietetics world, was intuitive eating a hit among your peers or like, what did that look like? You know what? I don't really think so. I seem like it was, I mean, it's stronger in the dietetics world than even now, I think than other fields, but even now I don't think it's necessarily, it's definitely not a mainstream thing that's taught, right? This No, no. It's, I mean, we're like the groundbreakers. If we're doing it, it's not in the curriculum in most schools or as part of the didactic program in dietetics. Um, maybe it is in some places, but I was really, I was a question asker. And so I had a professor that actually (laughs) pulled me into a class where we talked a lot about this, um, because I was constantly like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This doesn't make sense. I don't understand. (laughs) And she did a really good job bridging it with me. But, um, so I was kind of going down that path, but I found myself very, very alone in it for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That had to have been hard. And also you, at least you had, at least the book came out right then, but still it had to have been hard. It really was and still is, but even then there was no social media for a long time. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so it was like, well, how do I even get this message out? So anyone that ever worked with me over the years knew this. And my, even in my first job, um, I worked in the hospital as the outpatient and wellness and community dietitian. So I was in a room with a bunch of other dietitians that all had different, you know, roles in the hospital, but I was in and out doing stuff in the community and working with outpatient clients. And we did research then on this topic because even at, even at that point, I was like, I, I can't give people a weight loss diet. I cannot instruct people to restrict calories. It does not fit ethically for me. And so that kind of educating my peers really started early on. Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> um, anything else about your story that you think would be, um, helpful to share. I'm just trying to think, I mean, I do have some questions about it, but it's, it's just, it's interesting too, that like 
we really, in some ways, I think have made progress since that, you know, 1995. And in some ways, it's a lot slower than one would have, than maybe you had hoped at that time. You're like, I'm mm. a really early adopter. And then, yeah. Yeah. It's felt very, um, I hate to use this word because it's been at someone else's expense, like watching the research. I'm like, this is vindicating for what I thought, but also I'm devastated because by this information and this idea, not coming to light sooner and not being more expansive sooner, all these people have continued to diet and diet and weight cycle and drop weight and gain it back. And with that have set themselves up for health issues that are not set themselves up, but have been set up for health issues mm -hmm. that are far outreaching, um, where they would have been, had they been taught that their body size is okay. And that they can be very healthy and be a well-rounded eater without trying to manipulate their size. Because I strongly believe that the manipulation of body size and calories is what actually leads to a lot of the problems that we struggle with. And so it feels like, yep, that actually has happened. And you've watched our culture become more and more obsessed with what we eat and we are not getting healthier overall. Mm -hmm. If you want to like gauge mortality rates and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's something that, you know, a lot of times I'm processing in the one-on-one -on -one therapy experiences and, and somewhat in the program, but just the really the grief of like, wow, I, had I known this X amount of years sooner, my life would look different. Potentially my body would look different. It would certainly feel different. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, the sadness that's there and, and the anger, but rightfully so of yes. like, Hey, what the heck? <laughs> Why wasn't right. anyone, um, sharing this information with me? So yeah, I could see that being as someone who's relatively earlier on in this adopting of this different, I would say in the grand scheme of things, it's been somewhat of a gradual shift for me and, and really only recent. It's like, it would be hard to kind of, from your vantage point, sort of watch it unfold. I mean, at least you can feel great about the work you're doing, but like watch the world kind of move at a snail's pace. Yeah. And that's the part that really does the grief and the anger, like you said, is palatable. It is very significant. And so learning, I'm stretching into how, you know, how do we deal with this? And what a lot of us want to do is, okay, I want to manipulate my food intake that will give me control. That will make me feel better. I, my body isn't where I want it to be. It's making me miserable, even though it's not making you miserable, but we think it is. And that's something tangible we can grab onto. So it's like, let me manipulate my food intake instead of actually going down that grief process, like dealing with the piece of, you know what, this might be my body. I can make some changes, but I can't guarantee that my body is going to change, but our society continues to push. Yeah. Change your body and to applaud changes in the body and to assume that you are getting healthier. If your body is shrinking when from most of people, that is just absolutely not true. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's mm -hmm. really, it's, 
it's hard. Yeah, it's, it is. And, um, and we're going to dive into a couple of questions. Um, somewhat, um, some are specific questions from people within, uh, the online community that I have run and, but we're going to kind of dive into some of the, like how this over-focus on body size leads us to obsession with things like calories and, and how it really moves us away from nutrition. So I'm really excited yeah. to delve into Ooh, some of these too. questions. So yeah, we're going to just start with one of the first questions, which is um, really a version of a question I get a lot, which is I'm working on my relationship with food. I feel good about the progress I'm making, but I just went to my doctor. We talked about my heart disease risk and I really still want to lose weight. How can I focus on improving my habits and losing weight without messing up the work I've done in my relationship with food? <laughs> yes, that is a loaded question. And it's a very, very common one. It's something that I work with my clients and in my group program on every day. <laughs> and so first of all, that is really scary to go to the doctor. So if you've been working on your relationship to food and then you head to the doctor and you find out new information about your blood work, in this case, heart disease risk, it can really throw you back. It can be like, oh my God, oh my God, I got to do something. I'm not doing enough. What's happening here. I thought I was doing the right thing. And you also there, depending on who your physician is, you may be getting some pressure from that side. Like, okay, you, this is, this is serious. You need to lose 20 pounds. That's a very common answer, whatever weight, you know, let's mm -hmm. just take off this 5% of your body weight. Like you hear that from physicians, um, a lot, and then that's going to help. And so you walk away going second guessing yourself, like, am I on the right path? Okay. Maybe that wasn't right now. I'm you know, and so it can be very scary and very disheartening, especially mm -hmm. when you've been working on that, on that journey. So the first thing is to just remember you are on the right path, like to do anything nutritionally, to heal your body in that way, to work on that. You have to have this confident relationship with food. You have to be able to listen to your body and be able to take cues from your body in order to make, I think, healthy changes in your habits over time. Um, if you're, if everything is just external, if everything is like just based on calories and body size and, um, all of that, it's not, we know it's not sustainable, mm -hmm. um, psychologically or physically because your body's going to react to that. So mm -hmm. I think that it's really important to continue and to know that you can continue on an intuitive eating path, healing your relationship to food and make some changes if you need to for your heart disease, right. Or whatever your condition is. So you can start talking to a dietitian or somebody about what are some health promoting behaviors related to food that I might be able to incorporate within this scope of healing that meets my needs, both physically and personally, like my individuality and my, um, where I am in this journey. So, right. Mm -hmm. So somebody that's further along, you can pull in some ideas and say, okay, well, let's talk about your cholesterol levels and let's talk about what we know might help that. Um, 
you don't do any activity right now, but I know you're moving towards some gentle movement. Let's talk about some ways we might be able to incorporate something that we know is going to help boost your HDL cholesterol, right? Mm -hmm. If, or you might with someone else knowing their story and where they are, you might say, okay, we're going to start with something really small and we're going to start working towards that. The other thing I think is really important to remember is kind of going back to what I was saying before, which is our determinants of health food and activity is a very small component. It feels very huge. And we feel like, Oh, I don't want to take medication. I don't want to do this. I need to do everything within my power first. And that everything within your power can make an impact, but it might be a lot smaller. And if you're using weight as the gauge, you're never going to truly know the impact that those behaviors are having. So Mm -hmm knowing that the weight is not necessarily the gauge of your heart disease risk, but some of the behaviors that you're doing and trying to institute and the decreased stress and that you're having in healing your relationship to food is making a very huge impact along with so many other socioeconomic things in your life and social circumstances that are determining your health outside of just what you're eating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Focusing on like, yeah, what are the things that we can change that actually can have that impact? And the other thing I'll mention too, that I know is really common is this idea that people, maybe they've had this conversation with a doctor in the past, let's say, and they have like, you know, their, their A1C was a little bit up. So indication of prediabetes or that category that falls into that people talk about prediabetes. Mm-hmm. And then they've lost some weight and within that they've made some changes. So then they associate weight loss and then they see a lower, um, A1C in three months, they associate Mm -hmm. weight loss with that improved effect, but that's an association, right? That doesn't mean it. We actually don't exactly know what caused that lowering. It could have been if you had kept your weight the same and have made all those health changes or just felt like, Hey, I'm doing something and feeling good about that. The reduced stress could impact it. So it's so right. challenging because our brain immediately assumes it is the weight causal right. causing all of this mm-hmm. and therefore the solution, because we're told that all day, every day, pretty much. Right. And what we're not told though, is that actual just, um, deliberate attempts at weight loss and losing that weight is not sustainable. There is no research that shows that we have a, that there is a predictable way to sustainably lose weight. So that weight is probably going to come back up, but with it, what we know is all the behaviors that, um, come with when you've been restricting heavily in order to lose weight, then now it's like, Oh, I got the weight off. And now I'm allowed to eat this again. And I haven't had this in so long. So I'm just going to have this, but I'll never have it again. So if you're never going to have it again, and you haven't had it in a long time, I might as well eat it all now. And mm-hmm. so now some of those behaviors that you had instituted and that restriction that was so strict does the, does the opposite, right? It just flies back up versus not focusing on the weight, but focusing on slowly integrating some of these behaviors, slowly working on like what you work with and motivation and (laughs) helping Mm -hmm. people to get, um, be intrinsically motivated in certain areas and to figure out ways to incorporate these things without using weight as the bar. Yeah. Yeah. As the bar. Yeah. The metric. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
And so along these lines, let's speak a little bit to why the, the focus on calories isn't helpful. And, um, you know, what, what you would recommend people focus on instead. So those are two questions, but yeah. So the way I think about calories is that if you are focusing on your calories, you're really losing focus on what your body is telling you and your body is such has so much more information. And this is the thing that I think is so crazy. I talk about our big brains getting in the way all the time. You know, we have all this information and all these formulas and we're like, Oh, I'm this tall and I'm this gender and I'm this, you know, um, weight. So this is of course, how many calories I need, but there are so many other factors that come into this. And so I think I always go back first to the fact that, um, you know, everyone at a certain size doesn't need the same amount of food and we don't need the same amount of food every single day. It fluctuates a lot. And if you have been having a history of dieting, those formulas are going to be even further off, right? Because now your metabolism is different. It's changed. And we don't know how long a metabolism stays depressed, how long your body is pushing out hormones that, um, encourage you to eat and to be hungry and to decrease your energy expenditure because your body is fighting starvation for a while. And so that gets really wonky too. So outside of the fact that we don't know if those calories are right for you, if you're trying to focus on the calories, then you're really denying what your body is telling you. You know how sometimes you might have a day where, God, you really just don't have much of an appetite. And you're like, God, I didn't really have that much. Why am I not that hungry today? Huh? I don't know. And we don't know. We try to figure it out with our brains. Like, well, I exercised like normal. I did this like normal. I don't mm-hmm. know. What is it? Maybe your body's fighting something off. You know, you yeah. just don't know if you are, um, a slave to the calorie level at that point. And you're like, Oh, but remember yesterday I was super hungry and I only had this many calories and I felt terrible all day today. I don't really feel that hungry, but gosh, darn, I'm not going to (laughs) reduce what I'm eating because I really hated that feeling yesterday. And Mm -hmm. so now you're kind of overstuffed today. You were hungry yesterday Mm -hmm. versus like going, listening to your body and maybe saying, well, I know I'm not all that hungry, but I also know I can't go this many hours without eating. So I'm going to have what sounds good to me. Maybe I'll have a banana or maybe I'll just have some crackers and see how I do. So that gives you the opportunity to really gauge within the scope of nutrition. Like you can still have nutrition principles and things that are important to you that you want to follow while listening to your body. You Mm -hmm. just integrate them in a way that works for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny in hearing you say that I'm thinking back to my dieting years. I'm like, I don't think I really ever felt like that in the past because it was always like, now I have days like that all the time. And I have days where I'm like, Whoa, I'm really more hungry. Right. Right. Um, but, but like if those days were there, I wasn't listening. Like, yeah. And that's, what's the, the thing that I don't know, just the scientist in me observing my own experience. I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, I always would get almost like jealous of my friends where they'd be like, I'm just like, not as hungry today. I'm like, I don't understand. Like I'm, I always right. want to eat because I'm afraid that I won't get to eat in the future because I've been 
you know, doing these like semi-restricted, I say semi-restrictive because my eating wasn't that restrictive. So anyways, I'll just throw that in there for the, <laughs> for the anecdotal, like, cause it's just funny. I'm like, Oh, but now all the time, like just ups and downs, like, yeah, I don't track, so I don't know, but I would imagine my intake fluctuates a, a good deal. Yeah. And there's lots of things that impact that too. And sometimes something just tastes so incredible Mm -hmm. and we go, you know what, I'm getting a little full, but gosh, it tastes so good. And I know I won't have it for a while. And that's just like, you know, normal Thanksgiving effect, right. Or whatever, a special meal effect. But when you're dieting, that's happening all the time. And Mm -hmm. the pleasure of food, the hedonistic value of food goes way up when you have been restricting. So food Mm -hmm. tastes way better because your body is like, you got to eat. So, and once you start providing yourself with food, some of that stuff that you thought that you would never stop eating before it's not as amazing because right, right. you can have it whenever you want it. And so that value goes down and makes it actually easier to manage. And I know it's always so, it's kind of fascinating. It does make sense. And yet like sometimes the, you know, I think you have to experience it. Sometimes I think you have to experience it to really believe it. Like, wow. Right. Cause I always used to just like almost observe my brain and how much in- anticipatory reward I'd have in my science terms of like having a certain food. And now it's like, I still certainly like a lot of different foods. Right. But yeah, um, it's definitely turned down the volume on that anticipation. Right. Right. It's not as intense, but yeah. 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 And I guess in terms of, so, so we don't want to focus on calories because there's so many, that's going to really pull us out of internal listening to our cues. It's going to be too external. So what are some examples of things that people can focus on instead? And we kind of talked a little bit about some examples a moment ago, but I'm curious what you think might be actually helpful to focus on. In terms of if they're trying to not focus on calories, like I want Mm -hmm. to be a more intuitive eater. I want to be a more nutritious eater and what nutritious eater. Yeah. Okay. So I usually, there's some just basic ones that I will start with, with people that I think are great ways to, um, learn how to build just some habits that are good for us, but that are pretty low hanging fruit. They're just kind of easy, but Mm -hmm. not really easy. So I will tell people we'll always look at water. Like Mm -hmm. I can't resist talking about, you know, hydration and thinking about your, your hydration habits and how much water do you drink? And are you hydrated? And do Mm -hmm. you drink throughout the day? And are these some things that we can incorporate? And I kind of tease about it because people are like, oh my God, that's not going to make me lose weight. And, you know, cause that's where the value is. I want to lose weight and water. That's not a big deal. Just tell me what foods to eat and what calories Mm -hmm. to be on, but really instituting a great regime of hydration is a good way to actually start to feel a difference that you're not expecting. Mm -hmm. And it's not big and it's not huge, but it is something that can feel rewarding as you go. And you're like, Oh my gosh, I did fill my water up. And I, now I'm kind of craving water and Oh my goodness, I found different ways to hydrate myself. So I think that that's always nice. And then of course, making sure that you're getting enough to eat throughout the day. That seems again, also very simplistic, but it's really important to be able to tune in and to help yourself to be able to listen to what 
your body needs is to be fed adequately. And so mm-hmm. really stepping out and going, okay, well, is there a certain meal that I always skip and where I always seem like I'm extra hungry? What could I do to maybe, um, buffer that a little bit? So if it's mm-hmm. always lunch or it's always breakfast, you might be like, okay, I'm going to focus on really, um, making, trying to get lunch. And then of course you have to look at the individual, you know, you might start with lunch every day. If depending on what we're talking about and who we're talking about and what their situation is, it may be Tuesdays and Thursdays. I'm going to focus on getting that lunch Tuesdays and Thursdays. And here's what my plan's going to be. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to take this or I'm going to order this or whatever. But I think the ability to eat regularly starts to help us to really make choices that feel good to us and that we want to make nutritional nutritiously, because we say all the time, like if you are over hungry, you are going to be craving something that's really high in sugar, really high in fat, really concentrated in those foods. And you don't want that all the time. There's nothing wrong with having them. But if every day you're going for the snicker bars in the afternoon, because you're over hungry, because you skipped lunch and you're like, why do, why am I a sugar addict? You know, I hear that all the time. (laughs) Like you're Mm -hmm. not a sugar addict, you're hungry and Mm -hmm. your body is craving that you know, an apple yeah. is not going to sound all that tasty when you've had not much to eat today. Definitely. Yeah. I, I find that that happens to me still lately. Like at the end of the day, you're just like, mm-hmm. yeah, it still always happens. And and I think many people still don't realize like, no, that's, it's really, truly like a biological effect of not having enough. That's what our bodies were designed to do is seek out energy dense sources of food. Apples are great, but they're not as energy dense as a candy bar. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you know, you can have the candy bar later, you might be more apt to choose the apple. You might mm-hmm. be like, huh, I do kind of want an apple. That sounds good to me right now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it might be because you're thirsty. I find, you know, sometimes yes. when I'm craving fruit, I'll realize, Oh, I have not had enough to drink today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm yeah. craving kind of that, that watery fruitiness. Yeah, totally. I, I think sometimes again, reflecting on pre-diet and post-dieting days. Like I, sometimes when I'm going upstairs to cook dinner and it's been too long since I, I, you know, the diet advice of like, just have some like baby carrots or something <laughs> like I, I used to try to follow that advice and get really frustrated with myself. And now yeah. I actually will follow it sometimes. Depend, I mean, sometimes I'll definitely grab something quicker, but sometimes we just don't have it. I'm like, oh, well, it's, it's not as hard to follow it now because I know I have like I'm going to feed myself like some way, shape or form, but it's just like, it's interesting how it makes the, the quote unquote healthy diet choice easier to make because it's like, no, I trust that I'm going to feed myself somehow, some way. And I'm going to eat enough dinner once I get to dinner um, and all these things. And so it's just, yeah. Anyway. Well, and I find for myself and I talk, tell my clients this too, you know, it might be, if you have to motivate yourself to make a whole dinner and you're that hungry, like have some cheese cubes, have a couple bites of chocolate, have something that is dense. It's not going to ruin your dinner, right? Because Mm -hmm. if you're listening to your body, once you get to dinner, like you can have as much as you want, you can save some for later if you want, or you can have it all now. But mm-hmm. for me, I'll get so over hungry that I'd be like, never mind, I'm not cooking the dinner I planned. I'm just gonna oh, go yeah. get something faster. And Definitely. so it's like if I know yeah. that I can nibble on of some chocolate, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're good. Yeah. 
Yes. And I don't want to give the picture that I just eat carrots. I'm just more like, no, if it's the only no, thing that's around, not. I definitely eat more than that. Oh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. 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 I think that that's, yeah. So yeah. Water hydration, eating throughout the day. Um, Cause I think that's not what people go to, right. When they think nutri- eating more nutritiously, they don't think about that. Right. And even I can fall into that like trap yeah. of sometimes like, okay, let's like jump into like this change, but it can be, um, first of all, the person has to know like what's too much too soon, but yeah, like, yeah, the, it can the, feel like it's not enough or something. Right. Like just to have more water. It's like, oh, right. well, that's not going to make a difference. Like you said, but it, it can. And, it, and then we're building your competence too, of like feeling effective. Yeah, for sure. Say if there's someone's like, okay, I've done that. I want to build from there. Are there any other, like, what's the next thing you might say? And I know this depends person to person, but yeah, it really does. It depends on the person for sure. And there's lots of different ways we can go about it. It just has to, it depends on what are your health conditions and where are you in this process and what do we want to do to build and how much building can you do at a time? Right. Mm -hmm. Because there's all kinds of great, um, advice that fits in, nutritionally or healthy, quote unquote, that, um, would not benefit you if you did it all at once. Right. So, and that's what you hear, you hear all, and it's just like new year's or like, you want to do all these things. I'm going to perfect my life. So I'm going to do one, I'm going to do all these different goals. And now before you know it, you're back in like diet mentality. Mm -hmm. And so I really try to push some of that out a little bit. I like to start people with one or two things to be thinking about as we're working on stuff. But if you start saying, oh yeah, well with heart disease, you want to make sure that you're increasing your activity because that'll help your HDL. And the other thing that'll help your HDL is to get more omega-3 fatty acids. So you should eat fish twice a week or maybe have walnuts every day. And then the other thing that's going to help is to have more fiber. So how are we going to get more fiber? So it can be an avalanche really quickly, even though all of it is great advice, mm-hmm. it can get really, it can get really hard. So it depends. Overwhelming. Like, yeah. And yeah. confusing. And then for me, I'm paralyzed. Like if you throw all the ideas at me, I don't care how many great ideas they are. All of a sudden I'm frozen and it happens to me in my work all the time. I'm like, Oh, Mm -hmm. I do all these things. These are all great ideas. And now I can't even do one thing. Right. Yeah. That's why the like to-do list that we make, which I even have one here. That's it's too many. It's five things. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, two to three things like, and yet our brains, cause yeah, it's immobilizing. And so, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that's what happens with this too. For sure. So, and so part of it, if you're trying to create ways to increase, um, have more nutrition in your life, like you're like, oh my God, but I know I don't eat nutritionally. I'm grabbing all this takeout and I just don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. Right. If you're going to want to be working on something like that, like lots of times I'll say, well, do you like fruit or do you like vegetables? So I'm not a huge fruit eater. I don't love it. Um, so if you told me to have a fruit with breakfast every day, it's not going to happen. Like Mm -hmm. fruit is too acidic in my mouth in the morning. I don't like the way it makes me feel. Mm -hmm. And, um, but for somebody that might be, oh, I could do that. I 
could mm-hmm. have a fruit with breakfast every day. But the other thing to try and think about is how am I healing my relationship to food right now? What piece of that am I working on at the same time? And lots of times the beginning pieces is unlearning some of these rules and unlearning some of these messages that you have to eat all of this fruits and vegetables to be healthy. And you have to have your diet within this pattern because then people start getting stuck in, well, wait, but I have this friend that does keto and I have this other person that does paleo. And I know this person that's doing intermittent fasting and they said this. And so now you start getting caught down these other rabbit holes. So it's really about kind of tuning out all the outside noise, really focusing on yourself and listening. And this is a big piece, whoever you're working with, like the people that are working with me, we've had to develop a level of trust. And so they have put a lot of faith in me and what I'm saying to go down this road that doesn't feel intuitive to them, right? Like Mm -hmm. a diet feels much more intuitive because that's what we've been taught. And so me saying, no, I don't want you to be really restricting this. And it's okay to have this candy bar. And this is why it's like at the beginning, they're just stepping out on faith. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the trust that they've built with me and the, is, is a big piece. Definitely. Yeah. To kind of hold the, like, hold the, the candle, I suppose, but also just like, cause it is, there's a lot of fear in the process and there's a lot of self-doubt that comes up. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's a very good, very good point. And I feel like we've touched on a lot of already a lot of good different themes. Are there certain key like takeaways or one takeaway message you'd like to know uh, people to know about kind of intuitive eating and nutrition? Yeah, that they can coexist for sure. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that, um, some of the misconceptions that you will hear is what you're just telling me to give myself permission to eat. How can I, I'll only eat junk food all the time. I'll put junk in quotes there because, you know, I really think that all the foods fit in there, but everybody knows what I say, what I mean when I say that, Mm -hmm. um, but they'll say, oh, that's all I'm going to eat. And that's not true. Like once you start giving yourself permission and you start listening, you find that you free yourself up to make choices and you free yourself up to experiment and to question and to want to try a different broccoli recipe because now broccoli maybe sounds good, but before broccoli lost its taste completely because that's all you were allowed to eat on this crazy diet that you ate, that you went on. And so it's like, um, the permission provides a freedom of sorts and that freedom allows you to choose the things that make sense in your life. Mm -hmm. And that can be really nutritious in your life. But Um, the takeaway also is that you do have to heal first. Like you have to be, um, challenging some of the questions and some of the rules and some of the societal, um, diety culture messages that are out there. I even, a friend sent me, um, a meme from somebody on social media recently in this, it was very diet centric and it was like, it sounded very sciencey and it said, you know, Oh, this isn't metabolized this way. It's metabolized this way. This makes so much sense. You should eliminate all this stuff. And it sounds real. Oh God, I really should do that. And those are the kind of messages that we want to kind of tune out 
nope, if it's telling you to eliminate an entire food group and it's saying some of this stuff, it can sound really good, but gosh, when I dug it apart and I was like, none of this is true. None of, they took the science and kind of twisted it, right? Like pieces of this are true, but you can't put it together like this. Doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the tough thing about, I love science. I love research, but there's so many, first of all, there's so much bias in research. It's not, you know, there's a lot of problems with research design. There's a lot of weight bias in research. There's a lot of lack of diversity in research. And then, and then you, from there, you can still kind of cherry pick studies and put them together and make your case. But like, what about all the other studies (laughs) or yeah, Yeah. it's very tough. And yeah, the, I always cringe when it's like clinically proven or like the science (laughs) and it's like, Oh, that's not, that's not science. And you know, the other thing, Sean, is that even if it is clinically proven and all of that, there's this other huge piece hanging out there, which is that food is a joyful part of life. It is part of our socialization. It is meant to be enjoyed. And when we start to pull some of the science out and remember that it's a social thing too, and an enjoyable thing, then this freedom that we gain is so lovely you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's that other piece that can really be transformative. And that's where, you know, once people start working in this area and going down this journey, they're like, you know what? I don't, I, my doctor told me that this is wrong with me and I just cannot go on another diet. Can you help me? Yes, I can. And the feeling that it draws up and the way their life changes in relation to this is so, so life giving Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it, it outweighs it because we're coming back again to just those nutrients that you're feeding your body are not making all the difference in your cumulative health, right? Mm -hmm. Because the relationships that we're building and the socialization and all of that is such a huge part of who we are and what, um, gives us joy. Absolutely. Yes. I love, I love that. Um, well, we'll move on to our motivation questions for the, as we wrap up the episode. So first off, um, what is one thing you have truly intrinsic motivation for? So you do it for the inherent satisfaction from the behavior, like you like it, find it challenging or satisfying in its own right. Well, if we're going to go with, I find it just truly satisfying, it would be reading. Mm-hmm. I love to read. I love to read everything, fiction, nonfiction stuff in my, in my field. So I don't, I mean, it comes from inside. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, awesome. challenging, I guess would be another one. Like I love to go, um, to a workout class at the gym because it is, it helps me to feel stronger, which helps. Like I've always have some kind of injury. And so that healing and the strength, I am definitely intrinsically motivated to do that because it, it feels like a challenge, but in a way that is moving me forward mm-hmm. Yeah, so that I can be more capable. Like I'm so worried about my, about not so worried about, but I don't, I want to be capable. Right. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the challenge of the class, like you've kind of learned to enjoy the intrinsic value of the challenge itself, but it sounds like it's tied to this broader, um, broader value of like, I don't know, maybe mobility or maybe just like strength or something. So for sure. Nice. Sounds good. And the next question is from a should to a choose to. So what's an example of a behavior that was always a should for you? You might have struggled to do, but you figured out a way to do it more consistently because you value it and or as part of your identity, even if you don't always love it. Yeah, that's an easy one. And so it goes back to culture. So growing up and once I got into college and it was like you felt like you should exercise and I played tennis but I didn't like do specific exercise because again, thin privilege, the people that were exercising, were trying to manipulate their body. But now I knew I needed to be more healthy. So I was like, well, I really should do something. I should exercise and maybe I should run. I don't like running, but, um, I ended up started running to meet a goal and uh, it's a long story. So I'm not going to go into it, but that goal, I was like, oh, well, this is kind of fun. I do like doing this. And I kind of built up and I thought, well, this is cool. And so I started running pretty regularly and it's been 20 something years now. But the thing that I think is really interesting, and I was pondering coming into today was the fact that the motivation has changed over the years. So for a lot of those years, the motivation was, um, I do, I run with a couple of other people and that's what kind of gets me out of bed. And if I'm not running, they're going to go past me and then I'm not going to have anyone to go with. And that's mm-hmm. what I like. And so we were always training for the same things, right? Training for mm-hmm. the same goal races. Yeah. But then what it's become is more of, I still, um, running is hard. I don't always love it, but I definitely love the connection with these same people that I've been running with over and over again. So now it's not as much about the goal. It's about, well, these are the people that I just kind of decompress with in the morning. And we share stuff that you don't think to share with people (laughs) just like mundane everyday stuff, like while you're jogging. And so it's interesting that it's, um, how it, how it's changed over the years. Yeah. It sounds like the, the intrinsic value is the connection. It has become the connection. So there's still Mm -hmm. an intrinsic value, although it's also tied with your identity. Like you said, you don't always love everything about it. There's enough there. That's very good, but it's tied with this identity of like a way to decompress a connection that you have with people. And I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm with you. I've, uh, I don't currently run very much at all, but uh, I'll have a lot of lifelong friends that I met in running groups because it's a great way to, it's a lot of time to just chat. (laughs) So absolutely. Yeah, it is. Then that's absolutely true with how these, because a big question that people have is like, how do I shift from an external should to a, you know, choose to, or I want to. And, and a lot of times it is setting up some, some external like supports, if you will, that can, and, and we go back to those three key psychological needs that, you know, Mm -hmm. we talked about on your podcast and we talk about here all the time, a sense of belonging, a sense of competence of like, we tend to continue to improve when we run with others, they push us a little bit and we push them. And so that can build that sense of like, Hey, look at us, we're improving. And so those things can be really powerful in terms of helping to shift. And, And then you can explore what are my, 
your shift, your motivations may change. I know for me, I don't have people to run with now, but if I did, I would be motivated to get back to their speed because I love it. Um, yeah. So I've said to my clients so many times, I've been running for 20 something years, but if my buddies aren't going to be there, I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm used to getting up. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, like it's normal. Like I get up and we go, but mm-hmm. if no one's running and they're not going to be there, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so no matter how strong that is, like mm-hmm. the habit in and of itself, sure. I'm like, mm, I don't want to go out in the dark by myself in the cold. Nope. Yeah. I don't think that's probably part of, well, there's mostly having kids is why I don't run right yeah. now. My body is recovering, but, um, but I actually am to the point where I could probably run if I had people to run with and I just yeah. don't that live here. And so, yeah, it's a powerful motivator. And yet people then just like blame themselves, right? If mm-hmm. I'm not running, I'm not motivated enough. It's like, no, no, right. that's not, that's not it at all. You're just missing that powerful motivator of connection potentially yes. and whatever the behavior is. Right. But yeah, yeah very that's cool. So cool. Yeah. Um, well, and then uh, finally, our the main part, of, a main part of our mission here on the podcast and at the Psychology of Wellness is teaching people, particularly women, to reclaim trust with their bodies so they can live more courageous and connected lives. Can you share a few examples of living courageously or building connection that you're proud of? Um, okay, so in terms of living courageously, I'll just take it back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is it has always felt like I've had to kind of, um, going against the grain in my field and maybe I'm, I'm a people pleaser, but not to, but I'm also very, I have very strong ideas about the ethics involved in this. And so it takes a lot of courage for me to disappoint somebody. And to, Mm -hmm. to tell people the truth about dieting and that, yeah, I could give you something that would, I could give you some ideas. I could give you a diet that would make you lose weight and you would not blame me. When you gained the weight back, you would blame yourself. You would beat yourself up. You would feel shamed. And I would know that it was me. I shouldn't have given that to you in the first place. Right. And so for me, that's a, a, that's a constant source of, and it was for a long time, really not as much anymore. It's just like who I am. <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so I don't have to prove it, but it was really hard for a long time. Oh, I'm sure it's, I think it can be hard now. And just, again, especially potentially during a time when it was a little bit less, although, yeah, I bet it's, I bet it's still hard for multiple professionals out there now, yeah. myself included. So yeah, for sure. Um, and then where can people learn more about you, the work you're doing and connect with you? Ooh, well, uh, my website is called shame-free eating, which is also the name of my business. It's the name of my podcast and the name of my course. So you can find me everywhere. If you just search up shame-free eating, so shamefreeeating.com, And I've got lots of information there. You can find my podcast there and it streams on anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And, um, yeah. And on Instagram, it's shamefree.eating.rd. Perfect. Yeah. We'll link all of that. And, uh, thank you so much, Julie, for your time and expertise today. Really appreciated it. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. 
If you're anything like me, you may at times really feel like there's so much pain in the world that it's pretty overwhelming. And even though I do my best to avoid the news, it's hard to avoid feeling helpless at times that you can't do anything to make positive change. Well, I'm here to tell you that there's one positive change that I've made in terms of where I buy my books, and I'd invite you to do the same. Bookshop is a website that supports local bookstores near you, as well as affiliates that work with them. So if you buy through the bookshop link, you're going to be supporting local bookstores near you in the U.S. and Canada, and you're going to be supporting my blog and podcast. It's kind of like a tip jar. Did you know that if nothing slows their momentum, Amazon will have about 80% of the book market by the end of 2025? Look, I have Amazon Prime. I love the convenience, but this is a super cool way that you can do something positive with where you buy your books and support some really positive causes. Make sure you check it out. You can find all of my favorite books about health and wellness, but also about topics like courage, vulnerability, and even some of my favorite fiction and kids books for the times when you just need some fun, downtime, or some meaningful stories. My recent favorite is related to improving the quality of our lives and the way we use technology, and really doing so from a value-based place. No pressure. It's not going to tell you that technology is bad. It's just going to help you to evaluate for you where the pros outweigh the cons and where they don't. So if you believe in supporting local, controlling the things that you can, please consider buying your books through Bookshop and through the Psychology of Wellness link. You can find that in the show notes, or you can go to drshawnhondorp.com. That's D-R-S-H-A-W-N-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash bookshop. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.